Welcome to Beyond the Fail, the podcast where we talk to leaders and entrepreneurs about their biggest business failures. We'll deep dive into how they overcame these setbacks, the lessons they learned from them, all to help you gain valuable insights. Failure is an essential part of the business journey, as well as being the key to success. So we're here to show you how to thrive from it. Today, we have Tej Singh on the podcast. Tej is someone I've known for a number of years now and was very instrumental to me when I was starting out in property. Tej is a property investor, author, serial business owner, having started a recruitment business in his 20s and most recently purchased a commercial cleaning company. Tej has his own very successful podcast, the Tej Talks podcast, which is now nearly 1 million downloads. You'll hear about Tej's struggles in dealing with unscrupulous builders, getting fired and becoming more patient. So please enjoy Beyond the Fail with Tej Singh. Good afternoon, Tej. Um, thank you so much for being here. I am slightly apprehensive because you being a podcast legend um, that uh, I'm now having you on and um, just reciprocating the favor for you having me on a few years ago. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. I um, exchanged on a business yesterday. I've done lots of exchanges in life, but um, not like this one. Quite hilarious in, in, in not a good way. Um, and I'm excited for this sort of new chapter that I'm on and going to be documenting for people, which I'm sure there'll be plenty of failures on on all this uh, kind of ch- new challenge, a new chapter that I'm on. And yeah, uh, I'm still buying property when I can when I can be bothered is, is the end of that. <laughs> I mean, it's um sounds super exciting, kind of as you say, chapter or change that you're kind of making. But um, essentially, it's all just business, isn't it? At the end of the day, really. So, and on that topic, I mean, how did you first get get started in business? Yeah, so I never had, you know, like a role model, like oh, my uncle did this or auntie was doing this, mum and dad. You know, there was never, I mean, my dad's self-employed as a photographer, videographer. He does my stuff. You know, all the kit, everything is, is thanks to him. But, you know, there was never like a, you know, an Elon Musk when I was growing up or, or someone I looked at and said, that's really cool. It was kind of like, get a job. And yeah, do you know, it was kind of, even now I struggle to look three or four years in the future. I'm very much like this year, what are we doing? You know, this month, what are we doing? It's a bigger picture, but really the focus of that picture is sort of now and, and more sooner and so I didn't have necessarily any influence kind of doing that what happened was I went to university went to King's College London biochemistry degree I still love science it still informs a lot of my decisions a lot of my personality and I had a great time wonderful I paid three grand a year to have a great time um it doesn't really help me it was good fun that's about it so cool I then got a job Got, uh, then I didn't really, you know, I, I enjoyed it, but I think a few things throughout the job were kind of, I don't know, leaving imprints in me and kind of scarring me a little bit. It was, okay, well, we're contracted from, I think it was nine to five, standard. Yeah, I would walk in at nine and people would look at me like, are we being it? And I'm like, fuck, do you mean you? It's well, like, like you're lazy. Yeah. And I'm like, you lot are just fucking weirdo. Why, why are you here so early? That's, I thought, that's weird. And that would, you know, and they can't say anything because it's contractually nine, but, you know, they would say things. And then there'd be little six onwards, and they'd love it. They'd always glorify this. And I was like, 
you lot have done, it's all, it's harder to leave earlier, right? Because you're in the building and you're leaving like, bye everyone, idiots. And I kept thinking, why am I, why am I saying, why am I feeling this way? And then, you know, saying to the, looking at what the CEO was doing, or MD was just amazing and was just schmoozing, which was his role at the time. Great. Um, just looking at that and just all these, and then like having to like get, wake up at X time, get ready at X amount of time, get the train. And I've never run for the train. You know, you see people that, oh, can't be late. I would just, the train would be pulling in and I could run and get it. I'd be like. No wonder you turn up at nine. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Right. So, you know, it's all these signs added up and I saw this, like something's not aligning it. So anyways, left that job, got a big pay rise quite early in my career, went to another job and then got fired from that. What so field was this in? Was it recruitment? Was it a recruitment? No, so this was in medical marketing oh. or medical education, they called it education. Pharmaceutical industries way of saying we're marketing to you, but we're going to disguise it as education. That was a whole nother topic, which I also learned at the time. I then left to get another job, same industry, big pay rise, shit company culture, to be fair. And they fired me because I wasn't doing what they expected. And I agree. I wasn't. I lost interest. Kubala's, you know, toxic culture. Yes, they were paying me, I don't know, 27K, 28K. So high for a graduate. And I was shredding papers. And I was like, is this, is this really like what your pet, like this does not make sense as a business. And so got fired. Uh, my friend had a recruitment business at the time. He said, look, you know, it works. It's a simple equation. You put in calls and hours and time and you get out money. And I said, sure. You know, my 23 year old self. Um, and then I basically just got into it. He helped me a bit, you know, but I just, sort of cracked on with it. Recruitment's not rocket science. It's very, very, very tough. Don't get me wrong. But it's a simple, you know, it's a simple business. It's a simple equation. And now I'm looking at buying recruitment businesses because I know they're a great business. So you were in a sales role in, in recruitment, was it? Absolutely sales. You're selling yourself. You're selling your candidate. You're selling the client to the candidate, the candidate to the client. Mm. It is just sales. And it's sales like you might have a phone taped to your head kind of sales. It's there's a lot of rejection, a lot of rejection. How do you overcome that? A lot of people don't, is the, is an answer. Uh, I think I overcame it by, I kind of had to, you know, I'd quit, well, fired from my job, starting a business. Yeah, I could get another job, you know, I, I could have, there was nothing to stop that really, but I kind of had to prove it to myself and to prove that. I can do this because I took that kind of chance. And, and like, you know, parents were fairly chilled about it, dad more so than mom. But maybe there was also that, like, well, if I'm doing this, I need to start making money to live. So I think it was just the pressure of it. It wasn't like, oh, I need to do it or else I was going to not eat. You know, I was fortunate enough that wasn't the position. But there was still a pressure of this needs to happen. Uh, I think what I then learned is that, you know, I think what getting a no is your one no closer to a yes. And you know, that yes is just around the corner, but you don't know when that corner is. It could be now, it could be in an hour, could be in a year, but like that is coming. And all it takes is one yes to, in monetary terms, to be way greater 
then the time you've spent and money you've spent getting those no's. But that's very difficult to see until you get a yes and then you get paid and then you forget all the no's and you're like, yeah, yeah, you know, they said, yeah, we did the thing and that's that. And they're like, oh yeah, there was some no's there, you know, but you just don't think about it when you know what's coming. So that's why people give up really early because they don't know what the reward is like. And how did you go from that kind of recruitment then into, you know, starting your own business? So, so the recruitment was my own business. So that was my own business from, from the beginning. Um, still is to this day. I don't necessarily run it. Oh, so tell me more about that. Cause, um, so you, you essentially started a, the recruitment business with what your friend? No, so I started it alone. He had a recruitment business. He was going to sort of advise or mentor, whatever you want to call it. And didn't really happen to that extent. He definitely helped, don't get me wrong. So, you know, big up for that. But it was, yeah, it was me kind of being thrown into it and, you know, understanding that, well, I need clients. So uh, people who are hiring. And then I need people who want jobs or, or people that they want. And once you have these two, I mean, you could say it's like property. You need money and deals, money and property, and then you kind of do it. And there's a lot more going on in property. There's a lot of verticals in between. There's a lot of complexity. With recruitment, I think there is that complexity, but, you know, it was a lot simpler than other businesses, you know? It's a lot simpler than other businesses I run or will run. And I think that, for me, was a bit of a saving grace because the tough part was the emotion, was the dealing with the rejections, dealing with, hi, I'm a recruiter, okay, recruiters, hang up all the time, every day, just all the time. You know, being hated before they even know you. I was like, wait, you have to even know me, man. If you knew me, you'd probably hate me more. But like, I was like, you know, there, there's so much around the simplicity of the process. And that's what was tough. So, you know, as a business, great business to start up, minimal costs, great business to run. I'm just not that guy. You know, I'm just not the person who is going to be a successful recruiter. And what kind of gave you the, the sort of drive or motivation to like start in recruitment or was it literally just you saw from your, your friend that there was a good business model and you sort of, that led you to it? Yeah, I think it, it pretty much was seeing my friend do well and you know looking looking back now i look back at decisions i make nowadays and there's so much that goes into it but looking back at that decision it was very i don't know sort of frivolous it was just a bit um blase you know? like thinking back compared to what i'm like now was that you think i'd be more blase because i know more but then it was just like well I place people and they stay more than three months, I've made three or four grand per person. So why don't I just do that? I think that my naivety was a good thing because I didn't sit there going, oh, what if this happens? What if that happens? Spreadsheet, spreadsheet, spreadsheet. I was just like, okay, I've got a contract. Let me find some clients and let me do it. You know, it was, and then same with you was starting my podcast, which you know, sure we'll talk about the naivety of just being like, let's do it. I'm not going to research competition. I'm not going to let here's our microphone, here's my camera, let's talk. That's the kind of attitude that I think I have sometimes. I think that's interesting because, I, I, you know, there's, as you said, I think there's a lot to be, there's a lot of advantages of being naive sometimes. There's a lot of massive disadvantages as well. 
uh, what disadvantage uh, what disadvantages did you see within your recruitment business or what were the things that you didn't think of that came up that you faced in that business yeah so i think just how difficult the sort of emotional and how difficult the work was like i said simple but hard to execute on hard to do very time consuming very draining emotionally mentally um yeah. i don't think about like working from home alone for years what that does to you i don't think about kind of setting i mean i set some targets but i didn't really think about structuring them properly and rewarding myself and now on my goals i have like rewards for kind of every kind of mini milestone as such it could be little things it could be buying some new lush moisturizer like literally 10 quid and that's it but it's just a little reward circuit in your head that needs playing with sometimes i didn't consider that i think i also didn't consider the importance of you know, speaking with your chest and negotiating, you know, and saying, nope, I, I'm only accepting this percentage. It was a case of, I'm new, and if you're going to sign the contract, I'll, I'll drop my pals, I'll drop, the, I'll drop the percentage, which, you know, looking back, may not have been a bad thing, but I may have just been more aware of it as opposed to just being in it and kind of doing that. Uh, I think by researching my competition, I could have learned more about what they do well and don't do well and then applied to myself, which I did as time went on and built my personal brand in recruitment because I saw that people were doing this. So yeah, I think there was a few of the things that my lack of research and sort of understanding would have, you know, struggled with. But I suppose I, I find it hard to maybe, you know, think of examples there because I suppose I, I like the journey that I've had, you know, I'm grateful for it. It, it worked and yet yeah, it could have worked better, could have also worked worse. I think that's such a common thing, isn't it? Uh, when you, you know, when you start a business or when you're an entrepreneur, you know, selling a service or a product is to, it's a confidence thing, isn't it? You're so desperate for clients. You just want to, you'll do anything to get, to get that sale. Um, even though probably in the long run, it will probably set you a bad precedent because those clients will come back and expect that, 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 you know, that low percentage again. And you, you talked about getting fired. Was that a kind of pivotal moment for you to say, right, I'm, I'm you know, going to sort of find my own way here and path? I think looking back, it, it must have been because, look, the signs were there, as I kind of spoke to you earlier about. So I think I was going at some point to quit. You know when you speak to me, but how hard it is to quit? Like, you know, yourself, right? It's You think you're at a point where you're going to quit. You think you could... And then things keep you there. The system keeps you there, right? Income keeps you there, safety. And then you get older and then you need more savings. So it's, you know, it's almost a trap of sorts. And so, you know, I could say it wasn't pivotal. I would have quit anyway. And, you know, whatever. But I might have quit out of anger and misery. And then who knows what, you know, like, so I think, yes, it was pivotal because it forced my hand. It kind of forced me to say, well, actually, I'm using the job anyway let me try this and if it's you know in two or three months doesn't work i know i could have applied for more jobs it would have been a headache it would have been long but with my experience i would have got a job like i, I just know i knew the market at the time i would have got a job so it's definitely pivotal because it's it's brought me to where i am today and given me a shit ton of knowledge and experience that i wouldn't have had had i kept the job and you know, I kind of left that industry happy. You know, I didn't leave it hating it and never wanting to do, you know, I kind of left it like, see you. 
So you happen to be fired then, ultimately? Yes. Um, because I, I described this when I speak about it before, there was a sense of relief when I got fired. And that's weird, right? When you get fired, you think, shit, bills, food, what I do. But I was like, oh, that's all right. You know, I just felt like, you know, something, you know, just felt relief. And so, yeah. You know, and pretty quickly afterwards, as the recruitment business went well, you know, I was doubling my profits and turnover every year for three or four years. I kind of thought, yeah, please, thank God you fired me. Do you think that comes with hindsight, though? Or do you think that was something? Do you think at the time you were a bit like, you know, really worried and short of shooting yourself? I think at the time, no, I wasn't worried because I had logic. If I have logic, the emotion doesn't exist. So if I know logically this, you know, this cannot happen, then I won't generate the emotion. Sounds weird, but like, like I said, I could have got a job if it failed in three months. If it didn't, then we're winning, you know, and if anything, that experience would have been quite good on my CV to say, look, I tried it, failed it, you know, especially nowadays where people, you know, appreciate failure more. So I think because I knew I had backups and I did have a bit of savings as well. I think I just thought that like, there's there's nothing to worry about because I had a backup, and so the logic removed the emotion in that situation. I suppose you're also quite young, so it felt you know you could take that sort of setback at that. that you know, it's probably different if people have got like a family and and stuff like that and, and more dependencies. Yeah. That that um that logic and that emotion and that decision making is that you you touched upon it earlier about having or learning a decision-making sort of process from your degree in science, is is that similar to what you just mentioned? I think so. Science is, I mean, science is not emotional. You know, there's, there's no emotion science. You know, I think nowadays, of, of course, and, you know, certain, you know, everything, our emotions are controlled by biological reactions. So there is, but in the field of science, it's ologies, it studies of things. It's, does X equal Y? Is that how the molecule works? You know, like, the shape of glucose doesn't make me happy or sad. You know, glucose makes me happy or sad, but the molecular shape of it doesn't. And neither does carbon or hydrogen. So, like, I think the very logical thing, I think, I'll assume it's always been with me, you know, from, from a young age somewhere. But I think the science really allowed me to strengthen that even more and say, okay, well, you're saying something. Fine. If there's no evidence, I'm going to question it. Right now, there's a big cloud there and there's a blue sky. We can't really argue that that's a cloud. And that's, we could argue if it's blue or not, but 99% of people would say it's blue. And so I can't really argue with that. Whereas I could say, you know, that comment made me feel really sad. And you could say, what the fuck? I was, I was trying to be nice. What are you talking about? I'm like, no, well, it's just sad. And there's so much going on there. That with science, it's very evidence-based, analytical. It's if you if you say it, then prove it. Obviously, it's not for everything, right? Like you know, but for certain things, like oh, I think the property is going to be worth ninety grand when it's done. You know, or I think this business is great. You know, in four years, you're going to be making millions. Prove it then. You know, whereas some people may not have that thought process. They may just say, oh, okay, yeah, let me. But I just search for something to back it up, and I still listen to science podcasts and nutrition fitness things like that so it, it's definitely stayed with me in, in a few different ways and I'm, I'm super grateful for that element of it and in terms of like you starting your um, own business back then 
was your family's response to that? Were they supportive? So my mum was silent, which is <laughs> What does that mean? <laughs> well, exactly. So, you know, I'll just, I'll just perceive that as I, you know, perceive it. My dad, he's always just been laid back and a bit sort of hippie with it. Like, he was like, cool, you know, what are you going to do? You know, I've been self-employed. If you need me help, let me know. Um, you know, how can I help with what you're doing? Um, and now obviously he does all my audiovisual, so, you know, massive help now. So he wasn't unsupportive. You know, my mum, although she was silent and a bit apprehensive, I think she then sort of internalized her beliefs about jobs, being self-employed, etc. And then as I started to make money, you know, I wasn't, say, asking for stuff or I wasn't like, not asking for stuff in like a you know, silver spoon way, but just I would buy stuff or I would just do it even though I was living at home. And culturally that wouldn't normally need to do that. I would just be as a family or something. I think she then saw, okay, making money. And my grandmother, Malaniji, her mom is savage, typical Punjabi knowledge. And she would just be like, yeah, so how much are you making? Are you making money? Yeah, you making money? And so I'd have to answer that question and explain it. And so my mom would always know, but my mom would never ask me and still wouldn't ask me. But my Lundiji, every time she sees me, she goes, you still making money, yeah? You're still there? Are they still paying you? You still be my houses? And she's like, okay, just taking notes to deliver to the rest of the family because like, she's the only person who I'll just be like, yeah, 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 X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. And I think my mom then also got that information and was kind of like, okay, you know, as long as you're happy and you're doing your thing, then... Who am I to comment? You know, but I think she's it's something I've learned from her. She kind of lets people make the mistake and learn from it. So like um GCSEs, I remember not really studying, and she was like, Oh, you want to play Xbox, do you? I was like, Yeah, she's like, Okay, play Xbox. Play Xbox to your exam. And I obviously I was like, Okay. <laughs> Dickhead I was. I've come out with like a C or something. And she was like, How do you feel about that? I said, Nah, that's dead. I'm not doing I'm not i I'm not getting C's. Are you mad? A's A's only, baby. So then she said, okay, you want A's? You're following my plan. Put the fucking Xbox away. <laughs> and then <laughs> call all A's basically. And so she's the kind of person who lets you make the mistake and then learn from it, which I think is, I think that's quite good. I, I like that process. I do it to other people. Well, it's, it's a, a common, I suppose, parental thing, but it's also when you said it, it's it's what some managers do, right? They will let their, they will let their team or people they're managing make a mistake in order for them to get to get the learning um which i think you know is is useful because unless someone actually makes a, a mistake themselves and they get the learning then you could probably tell them that till they're blue in the face but they might not actually engage with it or understand it um and did you have any sort of fears or, or doubts about going it alone i know you said you were kind of like naive and, and sort of just went with it have you ever because obviously you've started quite a lot of different projects and obviously you're going to a different field now. Have you, do you have doubts? Do you have self-doubt or, or fears about starting a new thing? No. I'm, just, I'm a very confident person. It's, it's one of my strengths. I don't struggle with this and I don't struggle with self-doubt because at the end of the day, I say, if you can do it, I can do it. If Bill Gates can do it, I can do it. I don't want billion dollar company like that. That's fine. But if he can do it, I can do it. It's as simple as that because I know there's lots of things that make us different. Upbringing, culture, beliefs, money. There's a million and one things, right? Fine. I get that. But we're both humans. 
our, our you know our um dna or genetics are like point whatever percentage different you know in reality so therefore you know well, i can do you can do it. so never self-doubt i definitely have not doubts but like concerns so with the cleaning business i'm concerned okay how am i going to find good cleaners i know i can as a recruiter but how am i going to assess them and how am i going to balance clients needs with having enough cleaners and it kind of working because they can be a high turnover in the team industry so i think logically that okay here's my risks how can i fix them but i don't doubt that i can fix them and if i can't then i look at one of my books up here who not how by uh, dan sullivan and, and benjamin hardy and i say okay why can't i fix that problem but i know someone who can i don't want to do my payroll for flipping 13 members of staff I'm paying my accountant. Oh, I'm making less money. Oh, I don't care. It's who, not how. So there's a few reasons why I don't have the emotion of self-doubt because they are destroyed by the logic of how can you doubt yourself when there's evidence here of X, Y, Z. The science mentality again, uh, that, you know, the very much sort of data, data and objectivity. Um, but is there any... Because you talked earlier about not having any uh, sort of specific role models in in business, and then also you just talked about being confident. But where's that confidence and belief come from? You know, it's a good point. Like, I get asked this a lot, and you know, I don't really have a a sort of singular answer. For me, confidence stems from a lack of self doubt and also a lack of care about what people say about what happens. Um, I think it comes from dealing with things as they are, not wanting things to be a certain way and being upset when they're not. This is stoicism as well. I think, you know, when I was younger, I, I wasn't confident. You know, I I was more like an angry child. So I was confident in I had confidence in anger, but I wasn't, as a kid, I wasn't, you know, talking to people. I wasn't like that entrepreneurial person selling sweets. <laughs> not at all. And I think university then changed that, opened that up a little bit. And then, you know, my personality just sort of came and kind of shone through. You know, I look at both my parents and I say, my wife says, I can see what I've taken from both. So I think they are both very confident. My dad is very, very confident, speaks to everyone and anyone, you know, just super confident. My mom is super confident, like in herself, in her abilities, in how she communicates. So I think actually a lot of it came from them, was kind of hidden as such for a while, and then was allowed to blossom. Because I, I can't really see any other reason or any life experience. I wasn't thrown in front of a thousand people and said, oi, present. And then I just said, you know, I just can't think of a life experience. I think it's a sum of, you know, my parents, my upbringing, uh, the network I've since developed, uh, you know. And sometimes I wonder if, you know, confidence comes from the daily activities you do, you know, whether it's the music you listen to, whether it's, I mean, it is definitely the foods and things you eat, you know, whether you exercise, whether you don't, whether it's sunny, whether it's not. I think there's so much that goes into it. I just think I'm a sum total of all these different little parts that have come together nicely. So obviously you had the recruitment business and then you kind of like moved into to, to property as well. What do you think was the, your I suppose, proudest achievement or biggest achievement of that kind of period? Of the recruitment period or property? Well, either really. I think recruitment, you know, it became golden handcuffs. 
I didn't like it, but it was making money. So, you know, what do you do? Kind of got stuck a little bit for sure. Um, I did some contracting there, which was quite nice as well. I got paid way too much to do way too little, but that's fine. Uh, I, my biggest achievement there was probably, you know, doubling the turnover and the net profit every year for three or four years, you know, in a business that, like I said, I'm, I, I'm not that guy and like, I'm not good at it. I can run a recruitment business. I can you do the branding and marketing for it, but I'm not this geezer. Like, you know, so for me to do that, despite me being like, just not me and not something I enjoy, that was pretty epic. Uh, property, I bought 15 properties in my first nine months. So, you know, that was incredibly stressful. That was, you know, such a challenge. I know you've watched me kind of through that almost and, and invested with me as well in one of the deals, one of those deals. And that was, that was probably my biggest achievement. You know, it's, I built what a lot of people sometimes can take a lifetime to build very quickly using not really my own money. You know, I put in certain land at the start and even the business I exchanged on yesterday, it's no money down from me, it's investor funded. So there's a few things there that I think are achievements, but that's all headline as such as being the most like concentrated achievement, I'd say. And then, you know, look, looking at the kind of flip side, what would you say has been the sort of most significant failure or, yeah, or, or I was going to say setback, but failure of your kind of career? I think within property, it's got to be my overall relationship and dealing with builders. Now, I've had lots of failures a lot of the way on a weekly, monthly basis. You know, in recruitment, there were so many things that were wrong, so many things I did wrong. Lots of mistakes, lots of lessons that were learned. But, you know, none of them really, you know, got that bad or cost me that much or, you know, have a lasting effect to this day. Sometimes physically properties, I get a call saying, that's fallen off. Well, this is happening. I think back and I think, I don't remember that refurb. I remember paying for that. That, you know, that idiot. You know, why is this coming back three years later? And, yeah, for me, that had a big impact on a lot of things my mental health the health of the business you know like i say to this day some issues you know issues with remortgaging because the, the build wasn't done i was running over my bridge you know there's so many things that stemmed out of the kind of builder issues that i have now you know a lot of them could say were out of my control i could say they weren't you know it's hard to decipher because I could take accountability for everything and say it's all me. But at the same time, I know it's not. I know when an industry is endemically shit and has lots of problems and lots of bad eggs in it and bad apples in it. You know, I, like, I know that. So I take accountability for as much of it as I can, but I also have to kind of be kind to myself and say, well, yes, you did your fucking 10-page checklist. You did everything you should have. But it still went wrong, and that is out of your control. But there's loads of failures within that that I look at and think, Ted, you idiot. That's you. You should have done something there. Is there one particular kind of um, incident that kind of stands out? I think at one point I had about four or five refills on a one point, 200 miles from home. I, and then also was buying like three or four more properties, raising money, Instagram, podcast, you know, doing the whole kind of thing and, you know, building that ecosystem. And I just had a breakdown and I literally was just crying. I was like, why is no one doing what they should? What, why is the property not ready? 
Why have I given instructions that haven't been followed? What have I paid for? Why is the builder taking a picture like this of, you know, the room and saying, yep, all plastered. Of course, he's standing in front of the wall that hasn't been plastered, but I paid for all of this, you know. And then on across, you know, four or five projects, that many miles away, and some of them had project managers who were supposed to do their job, who did it really. And, and by the way, these, these are like my first, not my first five, it's probably from sort of three to sort of seven, that kind of period. I still didn't 100% know what I was doing. You know, I'm working with investor funds. I'm still learning. I'm still getting things wrong. And obviously they're all paid back and, you know, some were late, some were not. It's fine. They're all fine with it. But just everything sort of exploded then into this lack of control. And because I was so far away as well, I felt like when I can't just pop into site and check up on shit, it's like, I think I'm going to drive three hours, sort accommodation. And if the border can't meet me on that day, then what? I'm pissing around for four days waiting. There were just so many moving parts in my head that just meant that, you know, I just felt so out of control. And for me, that was the kind of biggest breakdown, which, you know, pretty, it resolved pretty quickly. It was like a day of, probably like half a day of just being like, it obviously built up to that. And then after that, then I sort of said, right, what's the plan? How are we managing this? I'm going to lose money here. I'm going to, you know, lose some potential profit. I'm going to leave more money in the deal. I accept that. That's done with. How are we solving this now? And then working through that kind of got me through it. But that's probably the biggest single point of failure. So that sounds like that's sort of the low point, right? Do When you, because that sounds like a really, firstly, it sounds like overwhelmed to an extent as well, right? Just yeah, got, all too, got all too much. What? You know, you said you had to kind of, you know, understandably kind of, you know, broke down and with that overwhelm with the, and the stress. On that, zooming into that particular kind of day, what did you kind of do in the immediate aftermath of, you know, I suppose that emotional outpouring? Was there anything that you did to kind of, I suppose, get your mental state a bit more? balanced in order to start thinking clearly yeah so firstly physically crying helped massively it's known to be a release of you know various things but also emotionally it's a release so that helped because i was either going to punch something and break something and throw things around the room like a fucking viking or i was gonna cry i think probably better that i cried than broke stuff because i'd end up paying for it and like you know so one of there had to like for me there had to be a that steam coming out of my ears in some shape or form. We just had to like biologically, there had to be a release, you know. Uh, and I think that's true for everyone. You know, whether it's you know you're pissed, go for a run if you if you can if you're a runner, go lift some weights. You know, have I've got like a stress ball up on there, squeeze the stress ball or ball in this case. And you know, listen to some music, dance. You need a physical release sometimes. We're physical beings. We you know, as humans. There's all this energy, right? We need to get rid of it. Um, and then secondly, talking to my wife at the time was my girlfriend and just sort of being like, this is a situation, you know, um, she's not in property. So it was more like general advice, but it was good to talk to someone and just say, this is how I'm feeling. This is why uh, I'm like frazzled. What can I do? And even just them saying, look, you need to take control. That's what you're lacking. And like you identified that overwhelmed. Them to say you're overwhelmed. Sometimes when you're in it, 
you're just in it, especially if you're not used to dealing with emotions or having too many, it puts you in a flurry. And so having someone just label them or so identify them and you say, yeah, I am a lower. Yeah, I am feeling a lack of control. It means I can take that and say, okay, well, how do I get back into wellness from overwhelm? How do I get back into control from lack of control? And then comes the logic and says, okay, what's the steps? What's the pathway? How am I going from A to B? You know, and then there's things like, you know, project management tools like Asana, using my network. Hey, can you check in on that property? I know it's going to take you like half an hour. Happy to give you half an hour mentoring session or you want me to look at your spreadsheet or, you know, whatever, you know, kind of value exchanges and then working it step by step to get to a point where I can breathe again, that I can do stuff and we're in control and acceptance is important, right? Accepting that I have broken down, I am overwhelmed, I am this, I'm going to lose money. Once you accept what's happening to you and that you can't change certain parts of life and things, it just gets, life gets easier when you accept things for what they are, not what you want them to be. But sometimes acceptance can take quite a long time. Did that, was that, was, did that come to you sort of overnight? Was that a kind of quick realization that you needed to maybe change your frame of mind on it? It was pretty overnight. Because again, the logic just kicked in and it said, you can carry on being upset, Tench, right? You can carry on all this, this, this shit, or you now know what's wrong and you know, give or take how to fix it. Obviously you never be in this situation before, but logic says, this is how you fix it. Speak to someone in your network who's been there, get their advice, learn how to fix it. And so I just did it because I don't know, I just didn't have time for the emotions. Like it just, it was like, there's a problem, but we're going to solve it and not talk about it. And that's not healthy necessarily. Well, I did talk about it, of course. I did get it out. But I was like, there's nothing to talk about. Problem identified, solution identified and identifying. Let's let's get through it. I like that now, you know. And I think it's to my detriment now sometimes where I'm just like, why are you upset about that? We know how to fix it. So skip that shit and get to the fixing. And that doesn't, you know, that's not necessarily a good way to be. You know? There's always a space for emotions and empathy and stuff. Well, considering how much you said that one, talking to someone helped, and then two, the the sort of physical lease of crying actually, you know, really helps you uh, at that point. Um, looking back at that sort of time and, and obviously though that incident or, you know, that low, lowest point, what were the signs that you like missed that that, was kind of on the horizon and was going to, you know, hit you like a bit of a kind of car crash? I think, you know, getting updates from builders and project managers that were sort of different from before was a bit of a warning sign. Uh, getting to the point where, you know, I struggle with, I don't, I don't tend to struggle with sleep, you know, unless something's really bothering me. And I think most times they're like in all the, kind of just get to sleep but my sleep is being affected i would wake up anxious refurb anxiety is real i'm sure you've experienced it you know i'd wake up at like seven just anxious i, I don't get anxious you've met me you, you know you know me i'm i'm just put me on a stage in front of a million people thousand people give me a topping there and then i won't be anxious like in a room full of people i don't know i'm not anxious i, I don't i don't just don't it's one of the things i don't get um and i had anxiety every morning like Literally, my phone would be, you know, the alarm would be there. 
turned over. I don't look at my phone first thing just for health, but also because my eyes. I look at it, my eyes would be fucked for the whole day. It's weird. If I just leave, turn my alarm off and leave it. But every morning I would turn it over and look, like in bed and be like, and I'd have a text. Every morning I'd have a text like, this has gone wrong. That's happening. You know, where's this? Why is it? New? And like, why are these things adding up? And the way I was feeling about them, you know, this took, this was over a few weeks. Like, do I still have reef of anxiety? Yeah, to an extent, I do. You know, it's not one of my strengths. Like, I can teach you how to manage builders. I can do it. But like recruitment, it's, I can do it. I can make money. It's just not my thing. And so, I would have that. And I think, you know, that feeling of overwhelm you, you kind of touched on, I think I was experiencing it in a, in a sort of like brain fog, um, lack of direction. You know, with what I was doing with the business and properties, and and I think just being in a bit of a sort of maelstrom of like, you know, just I didn't really know why, and it was probably because of you know the kind of point we were heading to. So yeah, there were a few warning signs for sure. I don't know if I could have stopped it early. You know, I don't know if it had to happen. I don't. Do you think it was a? Some of it was because you took on too much too soon. I mean, you obviously you know how we're juggling a lot of balls then. Uh, yeah, I think on paper, yeah, like I, 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 you know, how can one person at that distance do that in the properties? Now, now I can, now I'd say five or one died. Okay. I'm in the arse. Don't, please don't let me do that again. Right. But I could handle it. I know how to handle it. I know who to do, you know, so, but at that time, yeah, arguably it was too much at, you know, one point. And to then also be buying more and, you know, creating the ecosystem and doing, and doing other things. So, yeah, I think it was actually overwhelmed because I was actually overwhelmed because I actually, you know, was struggling to do that with the structures and systems I had in place. It doesn't mean it can't be done. Though. You know, five refurbs at once. Okay, you're getting daily, weekly updates depending on your relationship with the builder. But all the time, they're cracking on if, if they're actually working builders. Uh, but they're cracking on. And you're all sort of, you know, you're not always having to talk and, and, and do stuff for it. But yeah, you know, that was early days. I didn't have any outsourcing, didn't have any sort of systemization. You know, I didn't have the right team. There's so many things that for me, yes, made it too much, but now wouldn't make it too much. So it was a combination of essentially growth, business growth, but also the, which is what's typical in a business, I suppose, when you're new, is having no processes or systems to then cope with that growth. Yeah, absolutely. It was just, I can do it. I'm full-time property now. I can manage it all. Like, whoa. And yeah, not really, you know, investing in outsourcing or kind of having a mentor or getting some help or just, you know, and, and yeah. And what was the actual impact of some of the, or the, this failure around the sort of builders? Well, yeah. What was the impact? I know you obviously touched on it personally, but what was the impact on, yeah, your, your kind of property business? Lost money, uh, lost profit, uh, kept more money in deals than should have, uh, paid investors back later. Well, I don't know if that was the direct impact of that, but I'm sure, you know, the butterfly effect that you had some impact. How much money did you lose? How much money did you lose? 
I mean, no more than maybe a couple of grand per deal, perhaps, which got swallowed in the kind of money left in, filled in by like flips, kind of fill the gaps, rental pay. You know, it kind of, because everything was moving and getting flipped or getting uh, remortgaged, kind of filled the gaps in a little bit. So it's not as painful as you taking 10 grand from me now and being like, you lost it. It, it was kind of a lot softer. Uh, you know, to this day, like I said, still dealing with some maintenance issues, which, why? Not many. They've got way, way less because we've sorted most of them out. But, you know, back then, dealing with late mortgages, late repayments, um, not getting mortgages because things were a lot of a certain standard or finished on time and I'm trying to get stuff done. Uh, dealing with, uh, you know, this is not a bad thing, but having to share it on social, having to, but sharing it on social media. Maybe there's a perception, there's a reputational damage there. For me, I think it improved it by being honest and upfront because nine out of ten of people are not still in, in any sector, especially like property education, things like that. And, you know, it was just a, it was a tough experience for me mentally. However, I see that as a benefit, you know, in the sense that it, it scarred me, but I healed stronger. And I have the scar tissue and, and the wounds now to say, if you're investing with me, I've been there, I've done that, I've seen all that shit. I know how to handle it. So yeah, most of these negatives, apart from the money sort of lost, you know, become positives. Uh, looking back at it. Did you have any kind of contingencies in place or backup plans for some of those those issues that occurred or, or those those issues that led to the, the sort of failure? No, I think what I had was, well, the backup was find another builder. The backup was if it doesn't revalue, I'll sell it. So there was like a, you know, a, there were backup plans, but there was no sort of um, like plan B. That risk management. Yeah, because property can be quite linear, right? It was like, well, I've got to finish the refund. There's no... Oh, you know, that product's not selling very well. Let's remove that and introduce another. No, there's no complexity like that. It was like, just going to get shit done. So no real sort of contingency plans because at the time I didn't, you know, and even now if I look back, I just don't think I necessarily could have had many. And did the, the failure have any impact on the people you were either working with or you know, your partner and, and family? It definitely affected the relationships people I was working with. I got rid of some idiots uh, and, and probably ended up finding more idiots and got rid of them. But, you know, he definitely identified who I was working with with were unsuitable. My methods were unsuitable. It didn't really affect my relationship with, like, family, you know, wife, things like that. It was... I mean, look, it may have affected it subconsciously, like I might have been moodier or, you know, just quieter or kind of a bit more on edge during these refurb times, but I think the benefit there was I didn't live with my girlfriend, now wife then, which means actually if I was moody or anxious or anything, they'd never really experience it, you know? Whereas now we live together, she'll see it every morning, she'll see it every night if I'm feeling, and she'll know like, what's wrong? You know, what's wrong? Are you okay? Straight, and she's a psychologist, so she's even more attuned to it. You know, back then, I think it was a lot easier because I'm living with my parents. And so, yeah, they'd see it, but 
they'd just say that's normal work stress, which, you know, it was. So I don't think it impacted sort of like personal relationships really because, I, you know, I, I tried to keep it separate. I tried to keep it, this is work. This is life. What strategies did you have to do that? So one of the most important and underrated things is a physical separation in workspace. So I used to work at my grandparents' house in the conservatory, no heating, no insulation, wonderful. But um, that was a different physical space. Now, when I was in there, it was work. I wouldn't eat in there, but a little fruit bowl. I wouldn't eat in there. I wouldn't take frivolous calls in there. I wouldn't piss around in there. Actually, it was work, yeah? If I'm in that work. Anything else, I leave and I close the door. Um, and for me, and also sometimes I have to travel there if I wasn't like staying there. And it was just that physical separation. Now, door behind me, and then my glass. But there's a physical separation here between this and the rest of the house. Now, if I'm, when I get off this, if I'm going to send my friend a voice note, I'm probably going to feel like he's sent me one. And it's like, just chatting shit. I'll do it in here, that's fine. But I, I will probably go out and walk there. Um, if I'm, uh, you know, do anything work-related, it's in here. Like, and to be fair, like I physically separate everything. Like in the bedroom, like I just don't use my phone. No texting, no YouTube, nothing. It's just like sleep, get changed, moisturize. That's it. You know, and in the like, kitchen, I won't take work calls in certain places, and I won't have certain discussions in certain places apart from within these these four holy walls. For me, that was the biggest thing because it meant, and it means when I leave this door. Yeah, if I'm just hopping to get some water, I'm still in the room technically. But if but I leave this door, we're chilling. You know, I'm in the next door watching my Viking program on Netflix. I'll be in Asgard with them, man. I'm not sitting here having this chat with you. You know, it's it's very separated. So the physical separation and then the emotional separation that comes with that is the single biggest thing I did. Everything else is just, you know, normal tips that you get compartmentalization, yeah, etc. But for me, that split, big, big difference. And yeah, kind of going back to the the other people that you were kind of working with, was there anyone that kind of, because you talked about you essentially let people go because they were rubbish. Was there anyone that surprised you and kind of stepped up to actually support you in this time? No. Look, all dicks. I had, um, there was it. No. Because uh... I, I, we know, obviously when, you know, when I knew you at that, at this, well, at that, at that kind of time, you always talked about having a kind of strong network, but did that did that not end up being as strong as you thought? It was, but I didn't need their help. I just needed a good project manager and a good builder. So yeah, like people in my network helped me emotionally. They helped me process, you know, talk about it. But at the end of the day, they're not the builder. They're not the project manager. So, you know, my network... I suppose my network then found the new builders, but they didn't turn out to be shit. Although we had to have a good run together. So you could say, yeah, actually my network did help me get the kind of next person in line. So it, yeah, I suppose, yeah, actually it did. But, you know, in that particular time, it didn't help me as much as it helped me later on with certain people. Right, got you. And... You touched on it a little bit earlier and you said that there was a lot of stuff out of your control, but what was the one biggest mistake that you made that kind of impacted or was a factor in, in this failure? There's, there's a few 
you know, I could say I took on too much, like you mentioned earlier. I could say that my communication skills were not very good, which I think is a fact back then. I could say I didn't know what I was doing to an extent. I knew to an extent, but I didn't know fully. There was a lot of pressure on me with bridging finance, investor finance, things like that. Uh, it's really hard to pin down a single failure because, again, it's, you know, there's so many elements of each of those scenarios which intertwine together to create this kind of failure. But if there was one single thing, I suppose not taking enough responsibility and accountability and trusting people too much, you know, trusting the PM, trusting the builders tell the truth. You know, I wasn't scarred then by builders, right? It was early days and not visiting enough, not, hey, take a picture of the wall behind you. You should have made up three walls for, you know, not, you know, kind of getting what I needed, just being a bit too soft. And then also when I was communicating, not saying thank you enough or not saying, wow, that's a really good job you did. Just being very like logical, very transactional. And that, I think those combined, probably the biggest failure, which led to all of that. It's hard to pinpoint it, but if I had to, it'd be that. And what lessons did you then take from, you know, that, that period to then, I suppose, help you in or help you now and uh, and in the future? Was there anything specific that you kind of implemented because of those um the learnings that you had at the time? Yeah, super kind of due diligence on builders. Guilty until proven innocent. And again, that's debatable, you know, whether that's the right approach or not. It, it's worked for me, it's also not worked for me. Is that a trust thing now? Is it affecting your how you trust people? It's affected how I trust people and, peop and industries that have shown me they can't be trusted, right? So my solicitor... Great. No complaints. Work perfect. He did the M&A with me. He's my property guy, but he does M&A as well. No complaints. Other fucking side solicitor. Jesus Christ. You know, have you ever met a dinosaur before? Because I have, right? Yeah, in 2023. And so I don't trust other solicitors. And because they prove me every single time, right? So I'm not trusting of that. But I've also learned. I've been burnt by them. And every property I bought, the other side, have... have effed stuff up there there have been issues even my sister says it he says that 80% of the photos we come across you know there's, there's issues but there's 20% who are great uh, insurance brokers I trust them never had a bad issue with them uh, finance brokers I had a bad experience first time but ever since then I worked with Shaz and just 10 out of 10 and he's one of the best mates so no complaints builders I had endless issues with that so yeah, there is a trust issue, but it's also protective, like in any relationship. If someone cheats on you, if someone breaks your heart, you're going to be a bit more guarded, and it's the same with them. And yeah, I've got Craig at Mainty, who's amazing, and who I work with, and who, it's not guilty, and then proven innocent. It's innocent, and then proven guilty with him. But that's one person out of, I don't know, four or five hundred builders that I've spoken to, come across, had a chat, you know. So there is definitely a trust issue I, it's protective. However, it goes wrong when you're a builder and we meet and I'm already maybe giving you some attitude or I'm, uh, you know, we started working together and I'm maybe not communicating how you, what, what you want to hear. But I've learned to fake it. I'll be honest, I fake it. 
Like, if I have to say, oh, yeah, that's really good. Um, but, you know, that issue over there, what I want to say is, fuck that you've done that correct. What the hell is this? That's what I want to say. And I used to say that, but I've learned. And I'll be, it is fake. I can't, I'll be real. It's like, because it has to be, because it's not me to say softly, softly, gently, gently. You know what I mean? And so I think sometimes in business as well, there's almost that level of like, yeah, I have to say this stuff. Dear sir, I hope you're well. You know, how I just want to say, send the documents. Why haven't you sent it? And it, it sometimes it works. You know, I have a good habit of winding up. Um, other side solicitors and, and the litigation departments that love me. Um, so sometimes it works, but, you know, learning that communication and, and so we both know D, D Dudlow, I spoke to him ages ago, years ago. And I said, dude, I sent him some screenshots and said, this is how I speak to the builders. Am I doing something wrong? And he goes, no, they're fucking up. But the way you've said a few things there, depending on their character, you may want to rework that, and then this is why, and this is how. I said, okay. And then I implemented that, and it worked, you know? And so, you know, I know it sounds bad to say it's fake, but, like, it is. I don't want to, you know what I mean? When you ask me a question here, I'm not dressing it up. I'm just telling you the answer. That's what I want, you know? You're just asking the question. I don't, you know, your questions aren't three minutes long. You're not saying, oh, so, you know, you're that, 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 and the failure. You're saying, tell me the biggest failure. This is what I like. I don't like the other stuff, but I have to adapt. Is that like a, is it? Because you've obviously changed your communication style to be, I suppose, yeah, as you said, soften it a little bit and probably be a little less, I would say, maybe direct. It is, is that sort of directness or wanting to, you know, just jump straight to the point? Is that is that a kind of impatience there? Are you, are you impatient? I... Yes. And I've learned to control it massively. And I think 15 properties in nine months, you know, you can say, oh, that's impatient. <laughs> yeah, it literally is impatient. That's, I, I bought to and said, yeah, this takes forever. No, 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 let's speed it up. This is what it was, right? It is literally impatient. So it's good you spotted that. It is impatience. Um, time is money. We're not making any more time. You know, I don't want to be sitting here sugarcoating shit with you when... I could be watching Mandalorian or I could be doing my gardening or I could be baking bread. These, there's a million and one rock things I'd rather do than listen to whatever bullshit. So it's impatience, but it's also prioritizing. It's also uh, a lack of empathy, a lack of emotion because, you know, I just want to get to the the, the thing, the, the solution, the, the progress or whatever it is. I don't want to know all of the how you feel about it because you know i lack empathy i know i do i'm trying to improve on it i think i have I don't know. so yeah prioritization lack of empathy and impatience although i'm much better with my patience now because i just i'm learning to accept i can't control it i'm still going to try sometimes i can't control it then i'll just let it be and i'll carry on so it sounds like you had some kind of good learnings about yourself personally as well from from that period. I mean, definitely, it's you know I don't say it's life changing, but it's personality changing. You know, it it shows you what you're doing wrong, shows you what you're doing well, uh, what you should do more of, what you should do less of. 
uh, how you should speak to people, wh why you should speak to people, who's important in your business, who's not, what can be outsourced, what can't. Um, and then also it makes you look inwards, like you're saying about, well, was that because of me? Where did that come from? You know, and was that because of something I said and how they perceived it? But then could I say it differently? And it makes you question, yeah, like who you are, your, your upbringing, your, your culture, your family, your friends, your, I saying that, you know, where did that come from? You know, and then therapy is a really good way of doing this as well, because someone that does that with you and explores things that you never thought were related. So, you know, throughout all the businesses and everything we've spoken about, I and, and both of us and anyone is always learning more about myself. It's just a question of if you realize that, if you're aware of it, and if you internalize it, because I could have been given all these lessons and said, cool, I'm going to carry on being me. And that would be maladaptive. It wouldn't be very evolutionary, evolutionary, and it wouldn't help me adapt and progress forward. So I think you always have to be a student of life, you know, the cliche, but learning about yourself because we think we know ourselves, but, you know, there's so much in here and this is such a complex thing. And then there's consciousness and mind and soul and all these different things, you know, we talk about, you know, getting to know yourself, I think is one of the greatest things that you can do. It's tough. Oh, no. I mean, you know, I, uh, I've been seeing a therapist for the last three years and it's been, and that's not because I've, you know, had any particular, uh, kind of crisis moment is more for self-development purposes, as you say, to kind of get to know yourself better. And I think, you know, he describes therapy as a kind of lifelong pursuit and a lifelong kind of journey of, as you said, getting to know yourself because we're always changing every day, aren't we? Um, what do you think that, how do you think this, those, that failure has then led on to you and the success and achievements that you've now kind of had? Is there any, is there any correlation between those two things? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the lessons of communicating or dealing with people of holding my tongue, that's a massive, massive um, like sometimes I have to tape my mouth shut, you know, and just leave the situation. Like, you know, we live in an instant generation where you reply quickly. We can see when someone's fucking typing. Mm. We can see when it's one tick, two tick. This shit is fucked, man. Like why? This stuff is all done to keep us hooked, keep us using it, advertised to us, dopamine, blah, blah, blah. It's all engineers, it's all sides. But it's fucked, man. Why do I know when you're typing? Like, I'm going to send a message. You reply when you reply. I'll reply when I reply, and everyone's ha no. We have to, to sit there and respond, and that creates anger. That creates instant, you know, um, evolutionary kind of chimp versus computer responses. Or impatience again. Yeah. Impatience again. Impatience again, exactly. And and I feel like it's almost more like biological impatience at this stage. It's a reflex. It's you know, instead of you saying something and me me going. Suggest I feel this way, right? Putting that break between the stimuli and the response. It's you saying something, me say, Oi, what are we talking about? And you say, Whoa, whoa, whoa I didn't mean that. Well, maybe you did, but it's my choice how I take it. So that whole thing definitely came from that because there's been times where in like friendships or I can't think of specific examples, but I know within friendships, within business relationships, that I wrote an email, that I wrote a text, that I was about to make a call. I would have absolutely asked it, 
Like, and I, I would have lost out. So would they, but I would have lost out. And I just know that what stopped me was the lessons from before and being like, you know what, phone, you stay here. I'm going out there to stare at some plants or, you know, look at my fish tank. I'm out. I'll respond when I respond. You know, or texting a friend and saying, hey, so I was about to send this vitriol. Is this a good idea? And they say, delete, delete, delete. You know, and so having the ability to maybe look past the anger and ego in that moment and speak to someone or, or reconsider myself. I've sat there with emails and redrafted emails for like half an hour, you know, because there were legal implications when we were talking about. There were important business decisions. There was things that the wrong word, the wrong sentence from me, again, would have effed it. But typed, I deleted, came back, timed, slowed down. And I finally sent a much abridged version, which, you know, to the dismay of my chimp who wanted to just smash the person in the face, but my computer said, we like, good job, peace. And that's the biggest lesson for me, which to this day, like I said, I still have to hold my tongue. I still have to rewrite emails. I know in my new business, there's going to be times where I'm like, Lord, please, please don't let me speak. Where's the tape? You know, and I'm working on it. Is there any sort of other sort of business successes that you've had since that point that have now you can trace back to that sort of moment of failure? I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if it's directly correlated, but you know, my education, I went past six figures in net profit of, you know, kind of from the education and mentoring, which I don't mention it that much. I don't sell it like some people sell it. I sell it realistically. I said, this is very hard. I don't think you want to do this. If you do, okay, you know, with mentees, I've been taking you one on because my voice physically can't handle it. And too many people just do a lot of talking, a lot of walking. So I've, I've made a decent amount of money from that. I think, you know, if I look at that failure, again, it's communication. You're just learning to communicate. And then the earlier failures in recruitment of like rejection, kind of learning to deal with that rejection and, and understanding that everyone's on their own path and journey. And like, if we cross, we cross. If we don't, we don't. Um, and so that's probably the kind of, I say biggest other achievement, you know, for, and then, you know, the social media, the brand, the podcast, almost a million downloads. I think we're at nine by five, 155,960, somewhere today. And that has come from communication, you know, but it's also come from being myself, which is something I've tried not to lose despite being battered, you know, being, you know, um, you know, realizing that being myself was actually the problem, you know, an extent like a part of me was the problem, still managing to keep myself and my cool personality. I had to complain about stuff. People love when I rant on Instagram and, you know, talk about things. And I'm just like, people, this is therapy for me. Like, I'm glad you enjoy it, but this is helping me. Has come from those moments of messing up, from those moments of, yeah, that part of me was wrong there. I, sh I should have done that. So, I think an increased self-awareness sort of summarizes, you know, the successes that come from that failure. Does the content around your mistakes and those failures actually do better than some of, you know, here's a shiny new new house? Yes. Sometimes nothing beats new car, new house, 
new, you know, dopamine algorithm, ML bucket loves it. For me, the the content that performs the war performs the worst is like actual content that's valuable. Here's three tips to raise finance. That edge, we don't want to see that. We want to see you crying. We want to see your builder stealing your boiler. We want to see you winded about solicitors. We want to see you, you know, it's weird. Value doesn't add value apparently, just shiny stuff, which sums up society nowadays, I think. And maybe the next generation and what they're seeing, but well, I suppose it's storytelling, isn't it? Right, because you know all you know those mistakes and those failures that you know we've been talking about have actually given you a lot of rich content to tell stories about. You're right. And storytelling is, I think, is such an important skill in today's world. It's, it's something that we should master. And sometimes I struggle with it because I'm too to the point where I'm too like, here's the value, yeah, enjoy the value. Whereas storytelling is, you know, as you've picked up on this. Is so important and most people connect with that story and the kind of storytelling so yeah it's just well well picked up what advice would you give to new entrepreneurs and, and business people about how to handle a fear of failure because obviously there's something you didn't actually have when you started your new business well yeah i think the first thing is just understand you are gonna fail it's not if it's when, yeah, probably going to be soon, probably going to be often, potentially going to be expensive. Now, yes, you can reduce that. You can have a mentor, you can have some education, which can, especially in expensive games like property, can massively reduce that. There's still going to be some failures. There's still going to be something you forgot. There's still going to be something you didn't pick up. And so accept that it's when, not if. Accept that you need failures, you know, I think oh, was it Bob Marley says something like, how can you know the light? How can you see light if you've never experienced dark? Mm. Like, because if you've never seen dark in your life, how do you know that this is light? Right? Like, this, you know, a, a different sort of philosophical discussion there. But without those bad times, you don't know good. And the Stoics also said, you know, the kind of weakest person or the person who doesn't really command respect is someone who's never been challenged. You know, like poor them. They don't know what they're capable of. You know, the, the weakest warrior is the kind of one who always wins almost. You know, if you're always winning consistently and you're lopping off people's heads in, in, in the gladiator arena, okay, you're good. You're really being challenged. You need like Goliath to come in and bust your ass a little bit for you to be like close to, to be challenged, to develop. So you're capable of, you need to run 10 miles where you've only ever run five and be crying and puking up afterwards to know, shit, I can do 10. You know, you need to lift 40 kg chest press to know you can do it. And so, you know, this is part of your, you know, this is part of, you know, chipping the diamond out from carbon surrounding it. You know, this is part of the molding, the sculpting of who you are and then who you're going to be and how you're going to be in business. You know, without this, you're untested, you're unchallenged. You have no idea what you could achieve or what you're missing out on. And so, take it in like enjoy the process like this is part of it the reward at the end of it i don't know it's it's from all these people who've sold their company for millions and yeah that's a discussion about happiness there but they enjoyed the chase way more right they enjoyed the process a lot more and you have to enjoy the process because most of it is process it's years of process and then it's all rewards all right um stoicism and bob marley um in that answer amazing 
And what advice would you give to listeners who might have experienced a sort of setback um, like really recently within their business? So there's an old Persian, I think it's Persian adage, and it simply says, this too shall pass. You know, so you've got to think that, I don't know, yesterday you woke up, you had a stomachache. Now you're fine. Yesterday you didn't win the client that you wanted to win. But now you carry on and you're calling more clients, you know. Um, yesterday you didn't lift the weight you wanted to lift the gym. But guess what? You're going to go back in two days after you rested and you're going to have another go. You know, it, life is a collection of, of fleeting moments and, you know, this too shall pass. Like, it will pass and it's very difficult to see when you're in the moment. I, I promise you that. It's so difficult when you're in it to say, oh, yeah, Hedge says this will pass. Like, yeah, but when? And what does it look like afterwards? You know, but you have to think back to the good times you had in life and imagine or manifest, whatever you want to call it, the futuristic good times that, you know, are going to happen in the future. And and just remember, like, you know, you're alive, you're breathing, you know, I assume you, you know, have certain privileges and certain entitlements and, you know, things could be a lot worse. So just remember it's too short pass. Great advice. And I actually think that's one of Tom Hanks's favorite um, kind of phrases as well, mantras. So last question. If you could go back in time and erase that failure from ever happening, would you do it? No, I don't think anyone would say yes to this kind of failure. I'm sure there's some other ones people might do. But, you know, without that, who, who would I be? I'd be untested. I'd be that gladiator who's killed everyone. And I'm like, well, you all the weak. I'm the best. Well, this is not true at all. You know, I need to get slapped around. I need to get, you know, sort of, I need to get, you know, tested, right? I need to push. Um, and so, no, I, I definitely wouldn't. It goes back to the gym analogy, you know, like, how do I know I can lift 40s? Because I've done 38 for 10. Quick maths, I could probably do 40s for 6. I only know that. Because I've tested at 38, but I don't actually know it until I pick up the 40s and I try and lift them. And so, without that failure, I'd be on 30s thinking, oh, maybe one day I'll get there. But now I know what my limit is, where I can push it, how I can push it. And it's it's taught me so much, you know, about me. Fantastic. So, I've got a quick fire round for you. So, obviously, this is short questions and uh, quick answers. So, first question. Failure is a blessing. What is your life's mission? To love and be loved, to laugh and make people laugh, and to eat lots of cheese and pasta and pizza. What's one piece of advice you would give or you would want to give on your deathbed? Do what you love, but please understand that what you love may not be what other people tell you you should love. And don't get caught up in this hedonistic, materialistic chasing of money, even as a game, even as just numbers, even as a way to measure things. You should measure your success in your happiness, in your love, in your family, in your friends, in the memories you have. And me sitting here on my deathbed, I don't regret you know, 
not working hard enough. Sometimes I don't work as hard as people in my network. And sometimes I, you know, I look at them and think inspiring, but I'm going to just go plant some more geraniums in the back, you know, on, on Tuesday. Cause like I'm gonna, and I don't regret that. And I don't think people will either. So really, truly, deeply, madly understand what you love and understand your relationship with money and materialism. What's one habit that keeps you resilient? Jen, lifting weights. Uh, I'm not really a cardio guy, as as if you see me after some cardio, you'll probably guess that I'm not. Uh, I, you know, go to the gym every day, get up at five thirty, six every day. It keeps me resilient. One because it's good for your immune system. It makes me stronger. So I'm physically more resilient. Every single morning, for you know, six days a week. I am pushing and testing myself. I'm putting myself in a pit of fire and pain and, you know, and literally causing damage to repair to get bigger. Every single day, I start my day by doing that. And so I'm already sort of bossing something in the morning. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm ready to then take on other sort of minor things during the day. If you could be immortal, would you take it? Oh... So, now this little thing, because it's like he's living forever, but then, hold on, is it living forever or is it never being able to die? Like if someone shot me, would I still live? It's living forever. If I had no way of dying like at all, then I wouldn't take it because every day would be mundane. There's no, uh, as the Stoics say, memento mori, I think it is, like, remember death. There's no, you know, um, reason to do things because you're like, oh, I've got another 10,000 million years on this earth. You know, what am I going to do? So I think it takes away the beauty of life and the life is so short. And I don't think I'd live for that long because I think humans are going to kill each other at some point and just you know, have a refresh or something. But... It takes away the beauty of life as we know it. Nice. What's one surprising fact that many people don't know about you? Oh, I, I kind of share everything. I I mean, some people know it more now, but I used to be a professional dancer, a professional banger dancer. I think you know this. And I have performed in front of four and a half thousand people at Wembley Arena at the same stage as Beyonce. She wasn't there. Uh, on stage, she was in the audience screaming my name, obviously. Uh, but yeah, that's fine. I still dance. You know, if you ever see me at an event, I'm really not networking and chatting to you. I am not dance. Madam many talents. And is there anyone that you could recommend as a guest that you think should be on this podcast? Ooh, I am going to say, I think my friend Shaz Ahmed, where Shaz the broker will be good at this, really good communicator, really good at networking, has has failures, you know, often when you're working with clients and lenders and, and finance. So I think he'd be a really good guest to get on. I also think someone fitness related will be quite interesting. I don't I can't think of anyone who like in particular, but you know, someone who's been injured maybe, someone who's just come back from something physically, for me is like super motivating um, to what can be achieved. Amazing. And yeah, where can people find and connect with you? Hopefully everywhere, if I'm doing my job correctly. But Tedge Talks, Tedge.talks, Spotify, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, I'm everywhere.
Amazing. Well, um, we're going to wrap it up there. So uh, thanks so much again for being here and sharing uh, all everything that you've shared today, which has been a lot. So um, yeah, I really appreciate um, your time and, and being here. So thanks a lot, Tej. Thanks for having me. Your questions were really insightful. So yeah. Amazing. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Fail. Really hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new. Please do subscribe to the show and leave us a review. It really does help us to grow and to reach more people. Do follow us on social media too. We're at Jeswood on Instagram and at Beyond the Fail on YouTube and also on Linktree. Thanks again and see you soon.